Across the globe, 2,800 dedicated soldiers and civilians at 23 locations in 11 time zones stand ready. This is SMDC. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the High Ground, home of U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. Beetle and I are joining you from inside the Beltway in your nation's capital, Washington, D.C. The SMDC PA team has been out here all week telling your story. And we have an unusually long podcast for this month for Episode 7, so we'll save any more of that chat for the other side of Ronald Reagan to get us moving. we got some great stuff coming up. Stay tuned. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies. All right, here we are at Episode 7, which should be hitting the net in May 2021. I've had the privilege of working with First Sergeant Sagan this week in our nation's beltway. We're not together right now. I'm currently at uh, Fort Belvoir. Where are you at, First Sergeant? I'm in Washington, D.C., and now that I've had the opportunity to spend the week with Ron, I realize why I work in Colorado Springs. Very funny. Just tell them what we're going to play next. Sergeant Ronstad, one of the members of the SMDC PAO team, spent some time at the schoolhouse seeing how JTAG's operators are trained. Okay, let's take a listen. When Iran launched a volley of ballistic missiles at American military personnel stationed at Al-Assad Air Base, Iraq, in January 2020, it was 1st Space Brigade Joint Tactical Ground Station operators, JTAGs for short, who provided warning, allowing the service members in harm's way enough time to scramble to safety in hardened shelters. JTAG's critical set of monitoring, processing, and disseminating infrared data from satellites to provide warning of missile attacks is taught only in one place, the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense School in Colorado Springs. I recently paid a visit to the Dr. Peter G. Papa's training facility where the JTAG's initial qualification course is taught at the school in order to give you, the listener, some insight into what it's all about. Hi, my name is Andrew Francis Wimberly. I'm the course manager uh, for the JTAG's operator course, and I'm a Department of the Army civilian. Were you prior military? Uh, yes, I retired from the 1st Space Brigade in 2012 as a Chief Warrant Officer 4, and I'm an original operator from the JTAG system back in 1996 and 97. So uh, I have about almost 20 years in, in the JTAGS community. What is it you do here at the schoolhouse? I oversee the JTAGS operator course uh, for the training of the instructors and the training of the students, and also to make sure on a day-to-day -day basis that all their um, all the requirements are met and all the whatever they need to conduct the business of training, I do. We're the only ones in the Army that train the Joint Tactical Ground Station here. Why do we have JTAGS? Uh, JTAGS is the Army supporting element to U.S. Space Command for the Missile Warning Mission. And we're the ones that are actually on the ground in theater, uh, vices some of the other elements that, are, that support this mission area. What is the value in this course to the soldiers? Well, the value of this course for, this, for these soldiers is these soldiers are not uh, 
they don't spend a lifetime in the space community. So we take them from air defense soldiers, normally most of them are 14 hotels and they come from the Patriot community. Uh, we train them initially in the, um, in the space realm of what space is and what their job consists of and also the, the hardware and the software that they're going to be working with on a daily basis. Because once we train them after seven weeks, they go off to their organizational unit to get certified. The big takeaway from that I would say for the soldiers leaving here, whether they're the privates or senior NCOs or the officers that leave here is that the, the mission is greater than themselves. They're not just supporting the Army, but they're supporting the joint community and other services around the world. What, what's, the, what's the vet vetting process for an instructor? Before an instructor is, even comes on orders to the JTAC schoolhouse, uh, we're vetted. We vet them through the 1st Base Battalion and the 1st Base Brigade to ensure that they meet all the qualifications and certifications as an operator and maintainer at a forward location before, they're, before they come here to the school to be an instructor. So they're highly recommended from the 1st from the Base Brigade before they're even thought about to come here as an instructor. I then spoke with Sergeant Calvin Williams, one of the instructors at the school, where he touched on his background and what he teaches his students. I've been an instructor here for about a year and four months. I came through JTAG's IQT in 2016, late 2016, reported to my first JTAG's detachment, which was an Alpha detachment in Stuttgart, Germany. Um, I did two rotations to our sister detachment, Bravo detachment, and CENCOM, where then I was lucky enough to come back and ask to be the operations sergeant for setting up new detachment and Sicily, JTAG's uh, Signal Italy. So I performed the mission there, also helped set up that detachment. Um, I've known the system and used the system vigorously for the last couple years, and I sat in all various different positions, so I know the, the mission in and out. And I was hand selected to come back and be an instructor. So here at the JTAG Schoolhouse, we pretty much get students from all walk of life, from students directly from AIT all the way up to 05. Just teach them the basic theoretics on how to properly process and become a JTAG's operator. Teach them all about JTAG fundamentals and also OPR data, which is overhead persistent infrared. For the seven weeks that the student is here, they're going to learn all about orbits, uh, just the basic fundamentals of space, as far as uh, the different satellites in space, the different kind of orbits they're in, the refresh rates, and what the sat pretty much what the satellites are capable of and how we as a JTAG's operator tie into the bigger scale of missile warning. Detecting and disseminating missile warning is the ultimate goal. Seven weeks, do they go anywhere from here? Is there a follow-on after this? Yes, so they have a follow-on assignment where they report to their detachment where they would then do a little bit more training and then they'll be able to actually sit, shift, and pull the missile warning mission. What's the most challenging thing do you think a student is going to go through? Coming from zero space knowledge to having a bunch of knowledge and terminology thrown at you. Like we tell the students every day, it's just almost like drinking from a fire hose. So don't be afraid, just be a sponge. Absorb as much information as you can. It's gonna be a lot of things thrown at you that you're not used to. But the end goal is to be able to have you, it would at least come out, go towards the test room and sit and certify. What's the, what's the most important thing you hope your students take away from this class? The most important thing I want them to take away from this class is just a basic concept, a basic understanding of what our mission is and how to accurately 
perform. Uh, let them know that what they do is a real life mission that is very important. We're actually out here saving lives and what we do matters on a grand scale. Private second class Amaya DaCosta is in her second week in the course. Uh, here at JTI School, I learned a lot about the basics of my job thus far, um, but I'm really excited to go into the next phase and learn about more of the missile warnings. Um, I feel JTAGS is important because it has a lot to offer, especially to the Army branch in the military, especially in air defense. It literally protects everyone from missiles, um, protects the U.S., U.S. allies, um, coalition partners. So uh, JTAGS is crucial for the Army. I'm Sergeant First Class Aaron Ronstadt, reporting from the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense School in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You know, that's a really cool, what an important job. It's, a, it's amazing how just a few soldiers uh, provide overwatch for so many uh, across the globe. It's just really cool and a very, very important job. I guess they never really knew or at least thought about the fact that being a JTAGS operator is way different than other ADA 14 series jobs. That's got to be a major mind shift going from almost literally ADA something very short range to space-based missile warning operations. More like what the Air Force and units like the 100th Missile Defense Brigade uh, do. So what's next this month? Well, next we have a piece about a contingent of California Army National Guard soldiers who deployed to Fort Greeley, Alaska, to support the security mission of the 49th Missile Defense Battalion. Alan Meeks from our Huntsville office talked to Staff Sergeant Zach Sheely of the 100th Missile Defense Brigade, that's the 49th Missile Defense Battalion's higher headquarters, to find out why. Hello everyone, I'm Alan Meeks with the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command at Redstone Arsenal. Today I'm talking with Staff Sergeant Zach Sheely of the 100th Missile Defense Brigade. Zach, I'd like to talk to you about the California Army National Guard soldiers that deployed to Alaska in support of the 100th Brigade's mission. First of all, why are soldiers coming from California to Alaska? Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me. SNBC, in coordination with U.S. STRATCOM, generated a request for forces to augment our organic MP company at Fort Greeley. The added military police soldiers from the California National Guard's 330th Military Police Company are going to be integrating with the Alaska Army National Guard MPs of the 49th Missile Defense Battalion to defend and secure the missile defense complex at Fort Greeley. So, of course, the 49th Missile Defense Battalion must achieve the highest levels of compliance and training readiness due to their nationally directed expansion of the MDC with the addition of a new missile field. The 100th Brigade conducted a force design update in 2018 to meet current and emerging requirements. This force management process required added security personnel with the necessary legal authorities to perform this security mission. So the 330th MP company of the California National Guard was in a ready status in the National Guard readiness cycle and was identified as available and capable to perform this mission. Why this company in particular? Why a unit from California? Wouldn't it be better to source a unit from a similar climate? Well, the Army National Guard looks across all MP formations to determine the best fit in terms of programmed missions, readiness, and timing. So the 330th MP company has the right personnel, equipment, and core competencies to support the security mission at Fort Greeley. So, of course, units are expected to deploy worldwide, and this is no different. 
So the California National Guard soldiers are outfitted with all the proper cold weather gear to ensure that they're going to thrive in the climate at Fort Greeley. So the soldiers from California are from a military police company, but your article said that the soldiers from Alaska are part of a ground-based security company. Are these units the same, or is there a big difference between the two? Well, the MPGBI security company, also known as Alpha Company, is the only unit of its kind in the Army with a dedicated site security mission. This company was built from the ground up to ensure the proper manning, equipment, and training to secure the missile defense complex at Fort Greeley. So all Alpha Company soldiers are 31 Bravo-qualified military police, just like the 330th, which means that all soldiers with both units have received the same OSIT, or one-station unit training, basic and AIT, as military police. So the 330th MP Company has previously supported detainee operations at Gitmo, but this mission is focused solely on site security. So, Zach, on a personal level, the California soldiers, what might they gain from their experiences there? Well, they can probably speak better to that than I can, but as I wrote in my article, this is the first mobilization opportunity for many of the 330th soldiers. So the benefits to them are numerous. Uh, First of all, they're going to receive all the pay and benefits of an active-duty soldier while they're mobilized. Most of these soldiers are traditional or part-time National Guard soldiers. That's a big deal. Also, they're going to have the opportunity to participate in a strategic operational mission, and not to mention the location. Fort Greeley is situated in one of the most beautiful environments in the Army, It's uh, about 100 miles southeast of Fairbanks in the Alaska interior. So their off-duty recreation opportunities are really endless with hiking, fishing, and just exploring an awesome location. In fact, uh, Alpha Company recently organized and led a a spree to core hike to Kastner Glacier, which is located just south of Fort Greeley, uh, with Alpha Company soldiers and members of the 330th uh, MP detachment. Uh, Also, many California National Guard soldiers may see this as a future full-time job opportunity, So they may consider this as kind of a nine-month job interview to come back and join the Alaska National Guard as uh, Alpha Company MPs one day. Okay, let's flip that. What are the benefits to Alpha Company and their soldiers? Well, the benefits of these added soldiers are mutual. This really gives Alpha Company a bit more flexibility in their manning and scheduling. It also infuses a new diverse perspective and new experiences into the mission. Uh, So these soldiers can really learn from each other, which is only going to enhance the mission and really enhance their professional you know, development as military police. So, Zach, is this deployment a one-time deal, or is this something we can expect to last for several years? Well, this will be an enduring rotation, and the future is still being shaped. The Total Army Analysis Resourcing Panel approved a multi-component sourcing solution to fill the manning and equipment requirements. The Army National Guard provided resources to support the first two rotations. So the various stakeholders are going to be assessing the performance of the 330th MP rotation to determine the feasibility of the best multi-compo sourcing solutions in the future. Um, Along the way, the 100th Brigade and the 49th Battalion are going to be capturing lessons learned during the whole process to identify opportunities to to optimize the future mission. I will say that the respective staffs of the 100th Brigade and 49th Battalion put in a lot of work with our partners at the 330th to coordinate and plan this, this first rotation. So we're just really excited to see what the future holds. This seems like such a little thing. I mean, we're talking a few dozen soldiers deploying to Alaska. In the overall scheme of things in the Army, why does any of this matter? This is a tremendous opportunity to provide trained, ready forces to support the operational mission requirements. The addition of the 330th will immediately impact our mission readiness and improve the quality of life of our soldiers at Fort Greeley. Our zero-fail mission of defending the homeland places our MP security forces on a constant 24-7, 365 security mission. Our design has minimal personnel flexibility, 
which requires our leaders at Alpha Company to be very strategic in approving schools and leave requests. So the 100th mission is to defend the homeland from the threat of long-range missile attacks. And the soldiers at, uh, the MP soldiers at Fort Greeley are just an enormous part of ensuring that mission. The motto of the 49th Battalion is defending the homeland. But the MPs are really holding the line to literally defend and preserve the assets at the MDC so that they're ready if needed. This is also a great highlight of the California National Guard's investment in the tri-state partnership of the GMD mission between Alaska, California, and Colorado. And this rotation only increases their involvement in this national defense mission. Staff Sergeant Seeley, I want to thank you for taking the time to highlight this small but important deployment. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to tell our audience? Sure. I'd like to reiterate the importance of this mission. The 100th Missile Defense Brigade is the only unit in the DOD tasked with the defense of the homeland from ICBM attack with ground-based interceptors. This is a massive undertaking that involves many different agencies and assets across the globe. But the MPs of Fort Greeley are at the front line of this mission and work mostly outdoors in some of the most austere conditions you can think of. It sounds cliche, but really it's true. American citizens can sleep well at night knowing our missile defenders and MP soldiers have the watch. Having served there at Fort Greeley myself, I can tell you that the security mission there on the missile defense complex is absolutely vital, and they are serious about it. We often used to refer to it as the most secure square mile in the United States. Glad to see the two states working together to ensure that high level of readiness. Yeah, the Guard is a big part of the force. Uh, you know, the, the mission and the roles that, that they provide are, you know, uh, you know, help get the mission done. So it's good to see them supporting this mission, and, and, and good to see them out here on the ground supporting SMDC. All right. For our audience, starting this month, we've made the decision to replace our mail call segment. From now forward, we'll be bringing you a monthly history minute or history corner or, well, I guess we haven't really worked through the name, but you get the idea. So as a former military historian myself, I think First Sergeant has put together an amazing piece this month, a piece on the Vietnam War and a connection with the current SMDC unit. First Sergeant, can you give us a little background on what it was like putting this piece together? In March was, uh, you know, National Vietnam Veterans Day. Um, and, you know, we talk about the war in Afghanistan as being, you know, that's now America's longest war. But before that, the war in Vietnam uh, was our longest war. Uh, it, it very politically charged, uh, a lot of people on both sides uh, of, of the issue. And having the opportunity to talk to uh, a soldier in the 53rd Signal Battalion who actually served in Vietnam, as well as recognized his service, was, was really important, and I really enjoyed doing it. March 29th was National Vietnam War Veterans Day. This episode of SMGC's History Moment is about the war in Vietnam and the 53rd Signal Battalion, a veteran of that conflict. The roots of the war in Vietnam began in the 19th century when the area was under French colonial rule. During World War II, the Japanese forces invaded Vietnam and they were fought off by both the locals as well as the French colonial government. One leader arose, Ho Chi Minh, who was inspired by Chinese and Soviet communism. He formed the Viet Minh, or the League for the Independence of Vietnam. Following its 1945 defeat in World War II, Japan withdrew its forces from Vietnam, leaving the French-educated emperor, Bao Dai, in control. Seeing an opportunity to seize control, Ho's Viet Minh forces immediately rose up, taking over the northern city of Hanoi and declaring a Democratic Republic of Vietnam, 
with Ho as president. The French quickly responded, backing Emperor Bao. They set up the state of Vietnam in July of 1949, with the city of Saigon as its capital. But both sides wanted the same thing, a unified Vietnam. While Ho and his supporters wanted a nation modeled after other communist countries, Bao and many others wanted a Vietnam with close economic and cultural ties to the West. Armed conflict between the two nations quickly began. In 1954, the Viet Minh defeated the French at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, ending almost a century of French colonial rule in Indochina. The place is Dien Bien Phu in French Indochina. The year is 1954. The lonely jungle outpost, surrounded by communist guerrillas and accessible only by air, is doomed. In 1954, at the Geneva Conference, Vietnam was split along the 17th parallel, with Ho in control in the north and Bao in the south. In 1955, the strongly anti-communist politician Diem pushed Emperor Bao aside to become president of the government of the Republic of Vietnam. With a communist government in the north and a democratic government in the south, Cold War tensions intensified as the United States hardened its policies against any allies of the Soviet Union. In 1955, President Dwight D. Eisenhower pledged support to Diem and South Vietnam. Backed by the American military and the CIA, Diem's security forces cracked down on Viet Minh sympathizers in the south also known as the Viet Cong. The United States continued to support Diem and the government of South Vietnam, working under the idea of the domino theory, which said that if one Southeast Asian country fell to communism, many other countries would follow. By 1962, the U.S. military presence in South Vietnam had reached almost 9,000 troops. My fellow Americans, as president and commander-in-chief, it is my duty to the American people to report that renewed hostile actions against United States ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin. With advisors on the ground, tensions began to intensify. In August of 1964, North Vietnamese torpedo boats attacked two U.S. destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin. President Johnson ordered the retaliatory bombing of military targets. Congress soon passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which gave the president broad war-making powers, and U.S. planes began regular bombing raids the following year. The war in Vietnam had begun. On March 8, 1965, under the direct order of President Johnson, some 3,500 Marines of the 9th Marine Expeditionary Brigade came ashore on the beach at Da Nang. These Marines were the first U.S. combat troops to enter the war. Their job was to secure Da Nang Air Base, from which many of the bombing raids on the north were launched. In March of 1965, President Johnson made the decision to send U.S. combat forces into battle in Vietnam. By June, 82,000 combat troops were stationed in the country, and military leaders were calling for 175,000 more by the end of the year to shore up the struggling South Vietnamese army. The 53rd Signal Battalion arrived in Vietnam on the 4th of June, 1966 from Fort Hood, Texas. The battalion was responsible for providing communications 
for all echelons of the second field force. Among its capabilities were high-frequency radio teletype, voice communications, operating a communications center, a switchboard, as well as a military affiliate radio system, or Mars station. The battalion was responsible for ensuring communication between the Corps headquarters and units spread across 11 provinces around Saigon. Former 53rd Signal Battalion soldier Bruce Henschel, a veteran of the war in Vietnam, talked to us about what it was like to be a Signal soldier during that time. I was, uh, I got drafted into the Army in September of 1966. I, I, I went to basic training in Camp uh, Fort Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and then from there I went to um, uh, Fort Dix, New Jersey, where that was basically Morris Code, and uh, uh, from there I went to Fort Gordon, Georgia, uh, for my radio teletype training, and then from there we took that. I uh, was a replacement for the 53rd Signal in Vietnam. Henschel explains what his day was like while serving with the 53rd in Vietnam. We had a, a whole bunch of units attached uh, that we had communication with and stuff back and forth. And again, most of, most of the, all the messages were, uh, well, I don't want to see most of them. A good portion of them were secret and few of them were top secret messages. And those flash messages would end up, have to be, transported, which we we were not with headquarters itself, but we would have to transport them, drive them over to headquarters, and give them to the the person in charge at that point in time. The, uh, the job I had was, was probably, uh, you couldn't have asked for anything better. I mean, yeah, it was in a, in, in a bad situation where every once in a while you get shot at, but, but basically, no, it, it, it was a Henschel was part of the 53rd during one of the most decisive battles of the war in Vietnam, the Tet Offensive. He tells us what his experience was like. It's Tet, the Oriental New Year, and it's a new war. The Viet Cong simultaneously attacked just about every major city and town in South Vietnam. Now, for as far as Tet goes, if we go back uh, just before Tet, there, is, of course, there always is a, a, a ceasefire and a, a, a very, you know, so everybody could party and go and have a good time, uh, both, both the Vietnamese and the, the, Ameri- and the Americans at that point in time. Um, and, uh, I was in a place, I was in a place, they said, in, in Long Bend, but the exact post was, it was called the Plantation, and that's where the uh, 53rd Signal Battalion was. We were right across from a place called Widow Village, uh, and, uh, about, let's say we started about a couple days before uh, the 31st of, of January, we started getting communications, messages from people that that uh, that were going through the area that they were they spotted DC, they spotted NBA, uh, but they couldn't do anything about it. They just reported it, 
and everything was just left to go as it was. Uh, the date of the 31st, uh, after going to child, uh, the, 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 the locals that worked in the place were sent home. In fact, one of the, one of the ladies there said, be careful tonight. So, you know, it, it, uh, everything is going just fine. It's nice and quiet. There are fireworks and I'm regular fireworks. But uh, at 3.30 in the morning, all of a sudden, all hell broke. We were getting small on fire, mortar, and all that good stuff. Uh, and that kept on for a few hours. But as I said, uh, our houseboy uh, turned out to be a DC, and he was killed in Saigon. Uh, it was not fun then. It was not fun for... Uh, the little bit of combat that I saw was only about a, uh, maybe about a, uh, a week long total. So, but that was not fun. The Tet Offensive caught a lot of Americans by surprise. 1968 would be the costliest year of the war, with over 16,000 Americans killed. Yes, you Anti-war sediment began to grow at home as people took to the streets, demanding a withdrawal of U.S. forces from Vietnam. Vietnam is not our war. We must say no. Are we going to go? Hell no, we won't go. Hell no, we won't go. Hell no, we won't go. tells us what it was like to return home from Vietnam. We had to leave the country. I, 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 uh, I, I, the people that we dealt with, the locals, I don't know if it was a show or not, they were fairly nice, but you always had to watch what you were doing. Uh, did we have any opportunities to go into one of the local towns a couple times? They sort of discouraged that. Um, I, was just, I, w- I was glad to get out of there, and... Uh, even though I still had a little bit of time left when I got back to the States a few months, a few months um, just glad to get out of it. When we, when we landed at Traverse Air Force Base, uh, we were met, one of the groups was met with a bunch of hippies, and there was a little bit of a scuffle at that time, and but they kept the rest of us away from um or you know what have, what have, could have happened would have would have happened if if uh, people had just got that got a combat coming and meet some people that started throwing stuff at them you know you know what's going to happen uh, got in the city uh, in Chicago back to Chicago uh, uh, well, I mean, that's one experience I had if I was going over to my fiance's house. And at that time, I didn't have a car. I, I was, I took public transportation, a bus. But I got on a bus. It was a routed bus. And a bus usually is pretty, yeah, if there's noise bus. When I walked on a bus, the, the bus turned like a tomb. It, not a word was said on that bus. People started looking at you and pointing at you. Because I had my uniform on. And not a, not a word. Not a word. So... 
And then at work, well, that was pretty good. So I, I set stuff together. And there's every once in a while there was a comment about, you know, uh, what did you do over in Nam and stuff like that. But for the most, uh, that, it wasn't friendly at times. Henschel sums up his experiences in the Army and in Vietnam. My experience in the service, uh, even though going through uh, at the time could be sheer hell at times, I think it was good. I think it was worth it. Of course, I'm, I'm, I've also, uh, I'm a patriot, so I believe in what we, we, we were, what we did, even though, let's say, Vietnam, I don't know if we should have been there in the first place, but we were sent, so we had to do our job, and we did our job. The 53rd Signal Battalion left Vietnam on the 22nd of June, 1971, after five years in country. I want to thank Bruce Henschel for visiting with us today and telling us about his experiences in Vietnam, as well as with the 53rd Signal Battalion. And I want to wish him and other Vietnam War vets a welcome home. For more information about the war in Vietnam, visit army.history.mil. This has been an SMDC History Moment. I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. Thanks for listening. This is the end, beautiful friend. You know, when you sent me that piece last week, uh, when you first got it finished, my wife overheard me playing that in my office at home, and the first words out of her mouth were, is that Steve? I, of course, affirmed that, so she proceeded to sit down in my office and listen to the rest of the piece. She really enjoyed that first sergeant, and me too, for that matter. Well, that's at least one listener. But really, uh, you know, this is a, it, it is a serious subject. Um, it was great to talk to Bruce and not only tell his story, but remember all those that served in Vietnam and, and, and make sure that we let all the Vietnam veterans know and give them a welcome home. Well, now we're going to shift from history to technology and the future in a piece you did, Rod, in our cool job segment. That's right. A couple of weeks ago, I was able to get a hold of a very busy man with a really cool job, Adam Averly. The piece is as much about the team he leads, but his personal story and insight are pretty cool. And if there is any way to bend the laws of physics and science to create a lightsaber, he and his team will be the one that's going to do it. <laughs> okay, let's listen to how Adam and his team are making yesterday's science fiction, today's war fighting and life-saving tools with pure energy. Hello, everyone. I'm Ronald Bailey from SMDC Public Affairs with another cool job segment for the High Ground Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Mr. Adam Aberly from SMDC's Technical Center. Adam, would you introduce yourself real quick and let us know what you do for the command? I am Adam Aberly with the Space and Missile Defense Command Technical Center, and I am the director of the Directed Energy Directorate. Director of the Directed Energy Directorate. That's a bit of a tongue twister. Anyway, how did you get to become the director? Uh, what's your background? So I started out, um, I went to South Dakota State University, focused in on electrical engineering and physics. When I was a sophomore, applied for the Department of the Army Scientific and Engineering Co-op Program and got accepted into that. And in 1991, I started with, at the time, it was called the Aviation and Missile Research Engineering Development Center, um, which is now the Aviation and Missile Center. What were you doing as an intern there? 
really started optics, looking at optical guided missile systems, doing various experiments and, and working in the lab of, of understanding how optical guidance and control work, and then rapidly moved into um, laser guided systems for missiles. And I co-opted with them for four different terms while I was finishing up my degree. And I graduated in 1995 from South Dakota State University with an electrical engineering degree, physics degree, with an emphasis in optics and laser technology. When did you come over to SMDC and what were you doing when you first came to the command? Um, in 2000, I moved over to the Space and Missile Defense Command in the Technical Center started off in the advanced concepts group and focused on using that experience in optics to start looking at using optical detection sensors to identify detonations or launches of various missile systems. Did that for a couple of years and because I had a laser background, uh, got redirected pursuing science and technology efforts in high energy laser systems. So a lot of the work I'm familiar with that your directorate does is with the high energy lasers, uh, you know, 25, 50, even 100,000 watt lasers. And that's been a relatively long evolution that's starting to bear fruit. Can you talk, uh, talk to us about that evolution from scratch to where we're at now. Um, it's, it's very interesting to see how back in 2004, it seems like it's been a, a long time ago, you know, 17 years ago, but there's been a consistent thread of being able to conceive a, an idea of how one might go about it, um, develop the technology, conduct laboratory experiments, figure out what went right, what did, did, uh, didn't go right, and improve upon the technology, and then to build that up into a laboratory, full-scale laboratory experiment, putting the laser together and putting it on an Army tactical truck and show the potential of a high-energy laser weapon system to the warfighter, to soldiers, and to for them to understand that you don't necessarily have to have a bullet or a missile to have an effect on target. You can use a, a system that doesn't create any sound, doesn't create any observable, uh, detectable thing to then be able to negate a threat of, op uh, of opportunity and to, to, to destroy it. What is the composition of your team, uh, both organizationally and the type of people that work for you? In the Directed Energy Directorate, we have two divisions. We have a technologies division and a lethality and vulnerability uh, division. So within those two divisions, um, we have 26 government engineers and support contractors, that um, both engineers and scientists that are uh, conducting experiments in the lab, um, developing and looking at what's the next generation of directed energy science and technology research to be done to enable smaller platforms, multi-mission platforms. And so those 26 um, scientists and engineers provide tremendous value to the government because we're a, a relatively small organization um, within the Army that is looking to the future of what directed energy could do and, and provide benefits. 
All right, I understand that the bulk of your work involves high energy lasers, but that, there's more to directed energy directorate than high energy lasers, yes? Primarily within the directed energy directorate today, we are focused on laser, high energy lasers. But in the under the umbrella of directed energy, there is also high power microwave, high power radio frequency technology that also fits underneath the directed energy umbrella. At present, the Army has made the strategic decision that we will focus on high energy laser directed energy, but within our directorate, we do have some high power microwave, high power radio frequency scientists that are thinking of ways that those that technology can be a benefit to the Army. The Army just hasn't made a decision to invest a significant amount of S&T dollars to, to pursue those technologies. I've had the good fortune to work with a number of folks from the directorate, and the engineers, the scientists, the physicists, but there's also a bit of an art form to what they're doing. It's not all mathematical equations and scientific calculations. There's a creative side to the group as well. Uh, how important is that? So within our directorate, I mean, it, it amazes me how smart the folks in our directorate are and how they come up with really creative and innovative ideas to, to overcome problems and challenges. We have a lot of really young physicists. Uh, call them scientists also, but physicists who have degrees in physics all the way from bachelor's to doctorate. And many of them were research scientists in, in laboratories in the universities. And a lot of them are really considered national experts in the field of, of lasers and optics and atmospheric propagation also have a group of folks where their center of mass is actually out at White Sands Missile, Missile Range in New Mexico. And out there we have a facility, that's, uh, the, it's our solid state laser test bed. And at that facility is where we are researching and understanding um, how various materials, how these, these high power photons um, deposit their energy into various materials and what are those effects. Is it also accurate to say that, aside from the creative element of the members of your team, that they also have to be pretty broad? There's not a lot of them, and so they have to delve into disciplines that maybe they weren't specifically trained for. And on top of that, they need to do it collaboratively with the other services that are working on similar directed energy projects. Correct. I mean, I, the, the folks within our directory are very creative and constantly think of, of multiple different ways to solve problems or complex issues. And so, so the, the folks that we have have a, an extreme breadth of capability. They're not just in the lab conducting the research or coming up with the ideas or the concepts or or the, the, the projects to 
create the understanding of what they're they also have to take that out of the lab and share that with the, the larger community, uh, presenting results of their studies and research projects. Adam, if I could interrupt real quick. So how does someone get to be on a team like this? What did you do to set yourself up to be on teams like this and eventually lead teams like this? When I was in college, I took graduate level optics and photonics and laser courses because those interested me. And that's really what opened up the door to be able to apply for positions uh, that my very first uh, co-op position with the Army um, really had to do with the fact that I had added extra courses to a, a relatively already full schedule and because optics interested me at the time. So I took a, a photonics class, a graduate level photonics class. My first supervisor saw it and said, well, this is somebody that goes above and beyond just checking the box to get the degree. It's pursuing specialized courses uh, of things that are of interest. So if optics and lasers is a, a, an interest, look for those courses, um, graduate level courses, even as an undergraduate, to take some of those as electives. Okay, Adam, what is it about your job that makes it cool? What makes you want to get up in the morning and go to work and collaborate and lead this team of engineers and scientists? Personally, what's what's that like for you? So over the course of my career, it has, it has really changed. Um, when I was a young government employee, Going into the the laboratory and being creative, coming up with an experiment and just seeing the results of it uh, was really exciting because I was able to actually be in the lab and de develop and design an experiment, have somebody review it to make sure I wasn't going to blow something up or do something really crazy, and then actually construct that experiment in the lab and then document the, the results. It was super exciting early on in my career. As my career progressed, being able to, to then link from coming up with these concepts of these experiments and then actually building something with my hands and integrating it together, uh, putting it on a platform, and then realizing that, oh, it's, it's not just something that you brass a, a concept out on paper, you can actually put real pieces of hardware together and it can have an effect that you're looking for. It can produce the results you're looking for. And really as those things came together, it really opened my eyes that the path I was on was creating new technology that was going to completely change how future soldiers will fight their uh, fight battles and the technology that I was developing would ultimately save lives would would prevent people from dying Adam I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to speak with us about your cool job today it's amazing that the technology that we're putting into the hands of our warfighters today in just the next couple of years would have 30 or 40 years ago been considered science fantasy, science fiction. I can only wonder what technology you're working on today that's gonna to be deliverable 20 years from now. I have to ask though, somewhere deep in the bowels of the Von Braun complex, are you working on a lightsaber? So I get asked often, can we just build a lightsaber? Or can we build the death star and, and photon torpedoes. 
now. There, a lot of what I've done over my career at one point in time did seem like it was science fiction, and we were able to to realize certain aspects. But there are still laws of physics and laws of photonics that we we haven't figured out ways to violate those fundamental principles yet. But we're working hard to to see which ones we can barriers we can knock down. Well, first, Sergeant, you know there at the end when I asked him about building a lightsaber somewhere down in the bowels of the Von Braun complex on Redstone, the I answer do. I didn't hear was no. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, if, if it's possible, I think those folks down there can do it. What's awesome about science is that it can make the future today. And what else is great about science is it's true, even if you don't believe it. So true, so true. Well, First Sergeant, that about does it for Episode 7, a bit of a marathon episode this month. What do we have coming up for our listeners between now and the next monthly episode? Uh, SMDC Technical Center will be supporting a few rocket tests this month, so we're looking forward to that. And I know you and Staff Sergeant DePrisco have been collecting material this week from several SMDC soldiers for your I Am a Space Warrior video series. Yeah, we do. we've got a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, we spent a lot of time out here telling these soldier stories, meeting soldiers. You know, again, our job is to tell their stories. So that's a lot of great stuff coming out. Uh, Sergeant Briscoe and I are also putting together a special Memorial Day video we shot at Arlington National Cemetery with uh, the CG um, here in our nation's capital. So we're looking for that. And, of course, the subject of the week, for us anyway, this week, was uh, Colonel Drew Morgan receiving the Army astronaut device. And a lot of other visits we're making to Army space and medical units throughout the National Capital Region. So uh, keep tabs on our social media accounts for that. Hey, we're done for Sergeant. I look forward to bumping into you and Staff Sergeant DePrisco a few more times this week. Hopefully our paths are going to crisscross here in the National Capital Region. Uh, really enjoyed my time getting to know you guys better. Thanks, Ron. Me too. Um, we hope you and Colonel Morgan have a safe but fun week. And for all of our listeners to find out the latest on SMDC school happenings here in the National Capital Region and 23 other locations across 11 different time zones, check out our webpage, www.smdc.army.mil, for links to our social media and podcasts. From the High Ground Studio at the National Capital Region, I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month. This is SMDC.